You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the scriptures together this afternoon. We turn first of all to Galatians 3, the verses 1 to 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Then we turn as well to James chapter 2, the verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his spirit or physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see 
that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, it was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I'd like to preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses that in Lord's Day 24. Question and answer 62, 63, and 64. But why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? Because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God. Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. But do our good works earn nothing, even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not earned, it's a gift of grace. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? No. It's impossible that those engrafted into Christ by true faith should bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, let us pretend this afternoon that this building before us here and in which we are congregated is actually a courtroom. And in this courtroom, God is the judge, and there is a prosecutor on this side, and there is people for the defense on that side, and you are kind of the spectators, but you are also in the dock. This is going to be a court scene. And you may know that court scenes are not unusual in the Bible because in the Old Testament you will find any number of them. And sometimes, like in Micah 6, God is even busy suing his own covenant people because of their disobedience and rebellion. You see, when I teach these particular Lord's Days, Lord's Days 23 and 24, and they're kind of difficult, right? They're fairly theological. They go fairly deep. They raise all kinds of questions. And because they're quite difficult, it's sometimes easier to use a kind of analogy with my catechism students, and that's why I've often resorted to the analogy of the courtroom, and I thought it would also work for us this afternoon. Because really, Lord's Day 24 is an extension of Lord's Day 23, as you can easily read about. So then we are a courtroom. In that courtroom with my students, I usually say God is the judge. Satan, as well as the world, the devil, and your own flesh are prosecuting you. And there are all kinds of defense people that are cited, but we'll come to that in due time. So this is a court, and in this court, various people are on trial, or various attitudes are on trial, you might say, with respect to God and his salvation. Because last time what we saw was, this is about, these two Lord's Days are about, how do you get right with God? If you're a sinner, if you're by nature a rebel, an enemy of God, as Paul writes about more than once, how do you change that whole scenario, that whole status? How do you get right with God? How do you get in step with God? How do you get back in favor with God? And you can hear, that's a very fundamental question. 
Because if we are all out of joint and out of step with our Creator, we are in deep, deep trouble. And if there's any situation in life that we need to rectify, surely it is this one. And that's why many theologians have said, really, this teaching of justification in Lord's Days 23, but also partly in 24, is at the heart of the gospel. It's one of the most fundamental articles of the Christian faith. So how do we get right again with God? How do we, in a sense, turn back the clock to what happened before Adam sinned and rebelled against his creator and his father? Is it possible? Is it really possible to get right with God so that he smiles on you, so that he even, as Zephaniah says, sings to you again? Well, there's been various answers to that question throughout history and throughout Christian doctrine and also throughout the scriptures. One of the prevalent answers in the Bible is, you might say, the attitude of Mr. and Mrs. Do-it-yourself. And this is the view which says that right standing with God can be recaptured if you really, truly, sincerely apply yourself. In other words, you need to be diligent, you need to be committed, you need to be serious, you need to be really conforming your life and your thoughts and your attitudes to the will of God. And if you do that day in and day out, you'll get there. You'll make the great, glorious comeback. Now, who are the foremost proponents of that view? Many scholars would say the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees in our Lord Jesus' day are an interesting bunch. They're a group of leading, educated people, and really they're on a mission. And they're on this kind of a mission. We spent 70 years in exile in Babylon, and we don't want to go there again. And to make sure that we don't go there again, we're going to take the Old Testament and all of its laws and precepts, and we're going to study them and elaborate on them and codify them. We're going to come up with a a set of rules and a standard of conduct that'll make it so that we'll never, ever go into exile again. That's why you see, for example, when the Lord Jesus comes, he always clashes with these people. Because these people were making not only laws, but also traditions and all kinds of add-ons to the Old Testament faith. And they figured that By their righteous attempts, they could live safely and securely and under God's blessing and be restored to his favor. So does that work? Does the judge, the almighty judge of heaven and earth, think that this works, that you can, by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, even sincerely, make it right with God. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul has something to say about that, doesn't he? 
If you look at Romans 3, and I think that was read last Sunday, Paul's very blunt. Romans 3, verse 20, verse A, he says, there is no one who will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. See, the Lord Jesus is saying through the Apostle Paul, if you think that you can earn your righteousness by observing the law, by all of these Pharisaic traditions, and there were many, many of them, if you think that through your own spiritual sweat and vigor, you can somehow get back into favor with me. Paul says, no way. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Why not? Very simply. You can go this way, and you can achieve this end, but only only if you observe the law perfectly. That's what Paul says later on in Galatians 3, verse 10, quoting from Deuteronomy. If you keep it perfectly, if you keep every one of God's laws perfectly, then you can make it. But who can do that? Who of us sinful, fallen people with all of our knowledge and understanding and with all of our conceits, who can do that? It's delusional. You cannot, as a fallen person, make this kind of a comeback. And so if you're standing here in the dock as Mr. or Mr. or Mrs. Do-it-yourself righteousness, I can guarantee you one thing. That God the Father has a sentence for you. And the sentence is guilty. Guilty. So that's the first case. So we have not only, however, Mr. and Mrs. do-it-yourself righteousness, we also have Mr. and Mrs. combined effort. And if you wonder where we find that pair, well, we find them in the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Because there's something going on in Galatians which is related but is also a bit different. In Galatians, Paul is especially dealing with the doctrine of plus. Christ plus. You see, the Judaizers in Galatia were saying to the believers there, yes, of course, of course you have to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. Of course, that's a given. But, but it's not all. There's some other things as well. There's some more hoops that you have to jump through. For example, there is circumcision. If as a male you haven't felt the edge of the knife, you better do it soon. If you're eating all kinds of different foods, you better stick to clean and unclean. Oh, and there are special feast days because we have a special calendar, you know. So in effect, the Judaizers are saying to the believers in Galatia and elsewhere, Christ plus the works of the law equals righteousness and salvation. 
That's how you get there. Well, does that work? Christ plus works of the law? A great deal of Christ, a little bit of the law, or not so much of Christ and a lot more of the law? Does that sometime work into a, a formula that, that will save us, that will get God to declare us righteous and in step with his will? You know, it's a bit like, what happens if you have a cup of clean water and you have a cup of dirty water? When you put them together, what happens? Does it all become clean water? It doesn't, does it? Even if you have a big glass of clean, clear water and you have just a little bit of pollution in that other cup, if you mix it together, it just spoils it all. It doesn't work. You can't combine Christ and something else. And I know we're... We're creatures, and we tend to do that. You know, we, we may not identify totally with Mr. and Mrs. Righteousness or self-righteousness, but we, we don't mind these combined efforts, do we? And sometimes, without even realizing it, we, we build our theology that way. Oh, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, of course, but, you know, you, don't forget this, and don't forget that, and, and don't forget this, and it changes all the time. So if you want to be saved, for example, you have to believe in Jesus Christ and you have to pray. Or you have to believe in Jesus Christ and you have to offer. Or you believe in Jesus Christ or you have to go to church. Or you have to believe in Jesus Christ and do good to your neighbor. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do good to your neighbor, that you shouldn't go to church twice a Sunday, that you shouldn't offer. But when you raise those things to the level of righteous deeds that will somehow get God to declare you righteous, and you've got it all wrong. You can't work that way. Have you noticed the Apostle Paul, how often in Galatians he, he he's kind of frustrated and, and outraged when he comes to this kind of doctrine of plus? If you look at chapter 3, for example, you foolish Galatians, what's the matter with you guys? Who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was crucified, and and tell look what you're doing. And in verse 3, are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? You see, Paul's trying to show them it doesn't work. This whole doctrine of plus. And you know, it's not just in these things, Roman Catholic theology, you know, it's Christ plus Mary, Christ plus the saints. It's in charismatic theology, Christ plus speaking in tongues, Christ plus miracles. This doctrine of plus is everywhere. But what does it do? Fundamentally, it robs Christ Jesus, our Savior, of his honor, power, and glory. That's what it does. If you look, for example, in the Belgian Confession, page 509, 
Notice there it says Article 22, our justification through faith in Jesus Christ. And then you have, through that first paragraph, the second half, and there Guido de Bray writes, for it must necessarily follow either that all we need for our salvation is in Jesus Christ, or if it is not all in him, that one who has Jesus Christ through faith has complete salvation. It is therefore a terrible blasphemy to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something else is needed besides him. You see what this doctrine does, or this teaching does? It robs Christ of his sufficiency. And that doesn't mean that a lot of these other things that we've mentioned aren't playing a role in the Christian life somewhere and somehow, but don't let anything rob Jesus Christ, our Savior, of his preeminence. That's the point. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, you know, if you're following the Judaizers, the verdict of the judge is going to be exactly the same as it was the verdict of the do-it-yourself righteous. Guilty. No salvation. There is no hope in the gospel of plus. Okay, so we can't do it ourselves. We can't even do it in terms of a combined effort. Well, that brings you to a third scenario, which you find in Scripture, which is Mr. and Mrs. No Effort. You know where you find these people? You find them in the letter of James. Rather interesting how James writes in his second chapter about these people. You see, they were struggling with the Christian faith. And they had kind of come up with what they thought was a really neat formula. You, you really got to listen to this new theological formula. It's, it's so brilliant. It's so simple. It's so clear. You have faith. I have deeds. See? We don't worry about the relationship between faith and deeds. We simply divide them. You have faith. I have deeds. Or I have faith. You have deeds. And that's it. But notice, what's James fighting against? If you read this letter very carefully, James is, is fighting against dead faith, empty faith, people who are dead trees, fruitless people, name Christians. And unfortunately, we have those in the church too. And we have them in the world. I don't know how many people I don't meet in the world who, when you talk to them, say, oh, I'm a Christian. I don't go to church, don't pray, don't read the Bible, don't do any of that stuff. I'm a Christian. That kind of fits what James is getting at. Sometimes in the church you have that too. People who say, oh, oh I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm Reformed. I'm even Canadian Reformed. But there is no Evidence whatsoever. Maybe the only evidence is the fact that you see him sitting in the pew here once in a while. Or maybe even regularly. 
See, James is, is fighting against that, that kind of distortion of faith which turns faith into a matter of pure intellectual assent. Yeah, with my mind I believe it, but don't ask me what my hands and my feet and my pocketbook are doing. That's the kind of idea. And so the question is, if if you come before the Almighty, can you say to the Almighty, Lord, I want to be declared righteous because I have intellectually ascended to your gospel? And James says the answer is no. Absolutely not. And then he stresses. And don't be misled. For example, verse 24 in chapter 2 says, You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And some people think that Paul and James are at odds. That's not true. James is simply saying you can't define faith only in terms of intellectual assent. Because it's so much more than that. Look what he says in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so so faith without deeds is dead. Faith has to be living. And it doesn't matter. You you may come to me and, and you may give me the most orthodox reform formulas and statements and theories, but if it isn't lived out, It does not mean a thing. Over the years, sometimes I met believers. They said they were believers. And they were extremely verbal and vocal. But besides that, and they were usually verbal and vocal in a negative sense, by the way, they never, ever showed any signs of a living, vibrant faith. Beloved, that kind of an attitude is deadly. Faith as intellectual assent, faith without deeds, James says, is dead. And you're dead. If that all is, that's all there is to your so-called faith. You know, and again, the, the Belgian Confession, interestingly enough, page 510, under article 24, very illuminating, first paragraph, it makes him a new life and frees him from the slavery of sin. Therefore, it is not true that this justifying faith makes man indifferent to living a good and holy life. On the contrary, without it, no one would ever do anything out of love for God, but only out of self-love or fear of being condemned. It is therefore impossible, notice that, impossible for this holy faith to be inactive in man. For we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what the scriptures call faith expressing itself through love. There you have exactly what James is is speaking about. Don't empty out this faith the Scripture speaks about. And don't think that merely by assenting intellectually 
God is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So we've looked at Mr. and Mrs. Do-It-Yourself, religion, Mr. and Mrs. Combined effort, Mr. and Mrs. No effort. Then there is also, I think we have to say that Mr. and Mrs. Faith. Interestingly enough, when we talk about faith, at least in the context of the Heidelberg Catechism, we're talking about Lord's Day 7, right? Faith as knowledge, faith as commitment, as trust, and so forth. And that's a faith that also always finds its, its focus and its focal point on, on Jesus Christ. Last Sunday afternoon, Pastor DeYoung read from Romans 3. It's interesting, as you read Romans 3, 21 and following, right? For example, verse 22, this, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And verse 26, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus So how does that work? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, Scripture gives you all kinds of illustrations, doesn't it? Look at Abraham. We read about that, right? Abraham Abraham is the model in some ways. He is the father of all of us. I've said it before in this pulpit. You and I have three fathers. We have a natural father, we have a heavenly father, and we have a spiritual father called Abraham. And hopefully you're learning something from all three fathers. And don't forget Abraham. Abraham's scripture repeatedly says, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he, he turned his life over to the Lord. And he followed the Lord implicitly, even when the Lord gave him impossible commands and promises. Move out. Go to the land of Canaan. Settle there. You're going to have a son when you've long been a pensioner. All that kind of stuff. He believed God. And he lived out of that faith. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say there weren't times when he didn't try to do a shortcut here or there. He wasn't perfect. He couldn't stand before God and say, well, Lord, I, I always served you 100% all the time, every day. No. There were these incidents. But there is one main thing running through Abraham's life, and that is complete implicit trust in God, his father. And in the knowledge that God was giving him a savior and that he is moving forward to a better city than any city here on earth. Abraham lived by faith. Faith in the coming Messiah. And that says the Apostle Paul, and that's what James says. That's what we all as Christians need to do. We need to believe in Jesus Christ. And commit our life to him. Because ultimately, he is our righteousness. Going back to the analogy of the courtroom, you're standing here in the dock. And you're looking at God, so to speak. 
And you can say, well, Lord, I want you to judge me on the basis of my religious life. Or I want you to judge me on the basis of my combined effort with Jesus Christ. Or I want you to judge me on the basis of the fact that, you know, with my mind, with my brains, I was really committed. Never mind the other stuff. Or you can say, Lord, I'm here. I deserve to be condemned because my sins testify against me. My conscience accuse me. Everything is wrong with my life. The only thing I know is that I have placed my hope and trust in your son, Jesus Christ. And he's my mediator. And he's my savior. And he's my redeemer. And then Jesus Christ steps forward in the courtroom and he says, that person belongs to me. I've shed my blood for that person. I've given that person the gift of faith. I've given that person the gift of the Holy Spirit. Welcome into the joy of your master. Now, of course, I realize there are some who say, ah, but that's not enough. Psychology also enters the picture. There has to be more. There has to be some fear. There has to be this, this threat. No, there doesn't. I ask you the question, beloved, why are you here? Why are you serving God every day? Why? Are you collecting points? I collect all kinds of points. Avion points, sometimes Savon points, Sears points. I'm a point collector. Not as good as some of you, though. But, you know, none of those points have anything to do with salvation. So why are you here? I think as a believer, there's only really one answer, isn't there? I'm here. Because I love Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. He is my righteousness before God. And I know that the work that he has committed to himself to and that he has done on the cross of Golgotha is a complete, total, and final work. And I can build my life and my future and my children's future and life and my grandchildren's future and life on that foundation. And not on any other. And it's because of that thankfulness, that overwhelming sense of thankfulness, that I do all that other stuff. It just flows out. I'm a heart of faith. And that faith, that's not me. That's the gift that God has given to me. And that he allows me to work out every day. So no... Do it yourself, religion. No intellectual nonsense. No combined effort. This is about Christ. And Christ only. All and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you for reminding us once again that 
Jesus Christ is our sufficiency. And only him. But by nature, Father, and maybe that's to carry over from the fallen nature, we are such do-it-yourselfers. We're always trying to score points. We're always trying to find different ways. We sometimes rebel against the way of faith. But teach us. There is no other way. No other way to be declared right with you. No other way to come once again into your house as your children enjoying your blessings and your gifts day in and day out. Father, teach us that our righteousness is only solely, purely through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.